Welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast, Inclusion, Intersections and Insight. My name is Emily McGrath. Thanks for listening to our episode this month. This podcast is brought to you by the Resonate Bristol team associated with St. Stephen's and Holy Trinity Hotwells churches. Welcome. This month, I speak to two guests as we continue to explore our series theme, Inclusion. Jackie Elton, founder of the dating site Christian Connection and the campaign group Single Friendly Church. We spoke about singleness and explored what this means in our churches. Things we aren't doing, things we can. Next, I spoke to Ruth Edmonds, a Church of England ordinand at Queen's Foundation, Birmingham. She speaks about the intersections of her own identity, mentoring and how to be inclusive of the LGBTQ community within the church. If you would like to hear more on inclusion and join the conversation, we invite you to our live Zoom event on the 15th of December. Details can be found on our church websites, Twitter or Facebook. We cultivate an open-minded space as a community where we can explore ideas and experiences and perhaps where we can think differently, listen, learn and sometimes to change our minds. Well, welcome, Jackie Elton. Welcome to this episode of the Resonate podcast. Would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Jackie Elton. Um, I live in London, West London, and I, about 20 years ago, almost to the day, um, I started up a website called Christian Connection, which is a dating site for Christians. Um, And about... uh, Partly as a result of that, uh, a few years ago, we started up something else called um, singlefriendlychurch.com to really uh, address the needs of many of our members who are single and how the church can become um, more single friendly. So I've been, I do lots of other things as well, uh, but those are perhaps the two things that we're here to talk about. Great, thank you. Why why was single friendly church needed? Well, having been running Christian Connection for for very many years, um, you know, we were delighted how we were able to bring a lot of single people together. Lots of people got married. You know, wonderful things. But of course, most people uh, who are single, but you know, a lot of them don't get married or they. They spend many years being single or they become single again. And we were very much aware that uh, people struggled with being single in church. So we were often through our customer service, through interacting with our members, through organising events, were really becoming very aware of how difficult single people found the experience of being single in church. And we were very conscious that churches were not really understanding single people that single people wanted their churches to change but felt really powerless and so a few years ago we did a survey um, for our members on what they thought about church and I've never really done a big survey before and we spent a lot of time putting it together and about 3,000 people replied in a very very short space of time I mean within days and there was so much outpouring of um, really people wanted to express themselves. They wanted to say what they felt and they wanted change. 
And, you know, my plan was just to have a survey and find out how it all was um, and maybe write an interesting article about it. And we certainly, we took ages to publish the information. There was just so much information there. I mean, it took months to publish the information. And then we thought, well, okay, so we'll publish the information. We, we got a very uh, good guy, David Pullinger, to, who's very knowledgeable about surveys and about being a single Christian and spoke about the subject. And we put all that together and we put some talks together and lots of people started talking about it. But still... It's like, where do you go from there? Because surely, are we going to change anything or are we just going to say, yes, it's a, it's a big issue? Um, and that really took us to, we created a website. And then from the website, we started to say, well, how are we going to actually campaign for change? Um, so it's been a bit of a journey from, from doing a survey, uh, having a lot of customers who are single to saying, actually, we need to take this into we need to take this to the churches and we need to really identify how best we can change the churches. And so that's where we are now. We've really started what we call the single friendly church campaign. And I've previously heard you talking and one of the things that I found both useful and, and also challenging, I think is the way that you talked about the different kinds of singleness um, and the challenge of singleness in church is something perhaps I'd come across myself when I was younger, but also it was something I, I could identify and saw in particular friends around my age. But I think you spoke to perhaps some of the, just the ways that I hadn't considered. Is that something you could talk about a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people tend to think of, think of singleness as people who are not yet married or you know people in their 20s and 30s uh, they think often about women because there are far more women than men who tend to go to church and therefore so people have in their mind's eye a single younger single woman and actually there are so many single people I mean there are 40 percent of of society at 40 percent of adult society is single and that's really huge. And of course, that's not reflected in the church at all. It's a, it's a very different picture in the church. And so um, you've got single people of all ages. So yes, young, never married. You've got people who are divorced, um, separated. Um, you've got a lot of older people, widows and widowers. So, so it's a, and a lot of single mothers as well. So it's a really broad range. And uh, and we mustn't forget men either, because men often, single men just don't go near churches, often because very understandably, they're, they're not confident about going on their own. And they get a bit scared about um, how they'll be perceived or what pressures there'll be on them. So there's a lot of reasons why single men don't go to church. And that's something we need to address. And there's also, you know, different, different stratas of society, you know, it's not just middle class uh, women of a certain type, but it's, it, it goes across society. It's a very big thing in society and we need to understand a lot more about why so many more people are single and how churches can be good places for single people. I, th I think I was struck also even by the idea of people who are always single at church, although they may not be single yes. elsewhere, and so their kind of connection to church is as an individual um, but how that kind of manifests as well. That's extremely typical. I mean, you, know, you get the person who classically, she's married. I mean, I'm talking she here, but it could be the other way around. 
you know, married to a non-Christian, married to somebody who's either of a different faith or just doesn't go to church, um, brings up, maybe has children, takes the kids to church, maybe the kids stop going to church after a while. But yes, somebody who's part of a couple or part of a family, but they are the only person who, who attend church. And so they're not part of, they're not bringing their family to church. And that's hard. That's hard. And, um, and yes, they, they have a different identity from, from their, their family life. And I think that what's been very interesting and what's been observed in the seminars, the webinars that we've run, is now that people have had to come in bubbles and, and um, sort of in that period where people were coming to church um, after one lockdown and before another, is that how many people were sitting alone? So they were not part of a group, because often we just tend to sort of sit together, uh, whoever we are. But I think the leaders could really see how very many people were on their own and not close to anybody else. So I think that's really been brought into sharp focus. I guess there are lots of challenges that, are, that churches have around issues of inclusion, and they may be linked to certain protected groups in society or lots of other things. But what's the problem with singleness? Because there's, I don't think there's a, there are churches who are standing up and saying, we stand against singleness. Is, is it thoughtlessness? Is it lack of imagination? What, what is the challenge? Well, they don't say they stand against singleness, although some of them actually do. I mean, for some people, singleness is a bit threatening. But a lot of churches say, you know, we are proud to say that we're a family church and we welcome young, you know, we welcome families. And so, you know, that may not sound like a terrible thing. I mean, to say you're a family church, you know, how bad can that be? But a single person takes a view that, okay, I'm not wanted in this church. That may not be what the church means, or it may be what it does mean. But I think they have a perception of what kind of church they want to be. And actually having that message that is very clear that says we're here for everybody we're here for whether you're you know old young single married you know gay straight whatever it is is making a very clear statement of inclusion and that should include you know singleness as well because i think people are single people are pretty nervous of going to churches that are explicitly family and let's not forget you know 40 percent of people are actually um, single, 40% of adults. So that's a really big number. And that is so not represented in the churches. And aside from that sort of language, so branding yourself in a certain way, what are the things that you and your organisation see as being other ways that churches deliberately or perhaps not deliberately exclude single people? Well, we, um, we've talked about the five step. And um, so there's the, first of all, I, I think that the first stage is, is just understanding what I've just said, is that the church is really understanding that 40% of society, of adult society is single. So having that in their minds. And that's, you know, that's really important that they know that because a lot of single people just feel invisible. They feel invisible, not just inside church, but also outside church. Um, so it's, it's getting the churches to understand that there really are lots of people out there and in there who are single, and sometimes they just don't realise it. Um, and as I say, that the bubble has really, 
you know, shown that very clearly. The second thing is the welcome. Um, how are people being welcomed? And that is, you know, the first, you know, what, what it says on the website, what it says on the door, all the, all the ways in which uh, the story is being told about what kind of church we are, what is the welcome, and it's who welcomes you as you come in through the door. And are the people around, do they all look like they're, they're a certain kind of person? Um, and, and the hospitality aspect, you know, is there a kind of social life, i.e. events being run by the church, which is social, or just the, the social life that's going on inside the church? Does it include single people? For instance, we know that churches have things like Mother's Day and Christmas and yeah, there are all kinds of celebrations of weddings and baptisms. And, you know, those are, it's not that single people don't want to be part of that, but the focus can be relentlessly on events that are around marriage and family. And sometimes it's important to celebrate things, uh, events that are neutral to those things. Um, you know, celebrating people's birthdays or celebrating certain people's achievements and milestones, which are not related to their marital or family status. And when people are you know, coming for Christmas with their blood families, you know, that can be a really hard time for single people on their own, where they're really reminded of the fact that they're not part of a family unit. And so churches really need to be, make feel, people need to feel welcome that they're in the right place and they are valued uh, for who they are and not, um, you know, not as, a, as somebody who's, who's a stranger. We have been thinking through, uh, as resonate through the autumn and into, into the winter about inclusion, about different topics, different challenges to inclusion. And I think one of the things that was raised when we were thinking about race was this idea of representation to people see themselves in church. One of my friends who says she has felt very excluded from churches previously she said partly for her it's the way that things are talked about just even in the sermon so it, what's the kind of mirror not not just these kind of real practical logistical elements but what is being I guess engaged with in the in the real teaching and like when people give an example is it always the somebody talking about them and their wife or them and that you know is it what what is the language and I, I wonder if that's something you've come across as well this idea of representation that That would be my next point (laughs) um so yes you get the the classic thing of um yeah we were all sitting around the table and i said to my wife this and my little ones perked up and said this and you know the whole biblical church parable is is based around the family sitting around the table and it may be a lovely story but anything like that is so uh, uninclusive of a single person so um, it's it's really important that examples stories are really family unit neutral you can there are plenty of stories you can tell about encounters you've had experiences you've had story things you've seen which have absolutely nothing to do with your family life I mean of course you know you ha- if people have families that's great um, but when it's relentlessly on that subject, is I think, A, a bit lazy, because the person is just literally thinking within their own experience. It's really important to think about the experience of the people that you're speaking to and thinking about their life experience. Um, 
and you know if if i was a young speaker and i was talking about you know things that things that certain kinds of people did it might be very um careless of the older people there so it's it's trying to find things that we may all have done and so using examples that don't exclude single people is extremely important and i think the other thing about that is making sure that single people are speakers as well uh, and especially when you're talking about singleness it's amazing that married people end up talking about singleness and they'll say well when i was single oh that was a very long time ago oh gosh i've been married for 30 years now and you know and they'll still talk about singleness so i think it's really important that people see role models uh, who are single people who are preaching people who are just doing things around church there are literally some churches that will not allow, and I'm hopefully not, not as many as there were, who wouldn't allow people to lead groups, wouldn't allow people to speak. And still, still that's the case if they're not married. And I don't know if you've ever come across that, but it's uh, it, maybe, not, maybe not in Bristol, but I'm, I'm afraid uh, that's definitely uh, a situation in some uh, usually more conservative um, churches, often evangelical churches, where really the qualification for speaking and leadership and being allowed to run things is that you're a safe pair of, you know, married, a respectable married person. So, which is really hard then if you say your marriage breaks up or something like that, mm. and you're no longer that person. And do you have examples of things that church are doing really well? Because maybe that seems like a simple thing. Oh, I'm sure you think of something, but are there churches who actually you know, whether they've worked with single friendly church or are there great examples, shining examples of how to do it well? I mean, the answer is yes. Um, I wouldn't say there are loads of them, but what we're doing at the moment, we, as part of our, the new um, series of webinars that we're running, where, you know, we've had a hundred people come to our first webinar, about 70 to our second webinar, and they are doing, um, they've been invited to, to audit their own performance as to how they're doing as single friendly churches. And so they will be invited to really say, well, what, what are we doing well? What do we need to improve on? And I really urge anybody who might be listening to this to, to become, you know, a single friendly church, because those that are single friendly can then you know, talk about it. They can, um, we, we can put them down on our on our new interactive map on the website so that people looking for single friendly churches can find them because that's the one thing that single people are desperate to find is a church that will welcome them. Um, and so, yes, and those single friendly churches can um, talk about what they, what they do well. I mean, I was talking about websites. I mean, there, there's one church uh, that really has a beautiful, beautiful language on its website about welcoming single people and and you know there's so few churches that have that on their website that explicitly welcome single people you'd be amazed we we actually got somebody to work to look for other ones that did it and we just couldn't find them so so there aren't that many but of course there are churches that are great for single people and we're just trying to really broaden that but clearly we know there are the big the big town the big city churches that are great for single people but we need to do better than that because it's also for people who are more middle-aged, people at different stages of life. It's all very well to have a, a church that really works for, you know, young people uh, at a certain age. It needs to work right across the generations and, 
and at different types of churches. So I would say there's quite a long way to go, uh, which is not to say that there aren't some good churches, often where the leadership is single, I would say. And if there are people, churches that people know about, we would absolutely love to hear about them. The more the merrier. So I think you've been talking a little bit about some of the things that Single Friendly Church have been doing recently during lockdown. Yeah, how, how has that changed how you've been operating? You know, it's been it's been really good because we've gone through this process of we used to focus very much on research and people's experiences and a lot of social media and getting people to share. We've we've done a lot of things during lockdown. I mean, one of the things we did was we got people, single people, to share their lockdown experiences in the early stages. So we got some great short videos done across the board by different people talking about how they were managing through lockdown which was very popular it helped us to really refine where we were going and then um, in the last couple of months we've run two incredibly well attended seminars by church leaders all over the place and having you know zoom webinars just gives the opportunity for so many more people to attend to hear about single friendly church and to commit to doing audits of their own churches. And that really is a process that's now underway. So actually, lockdown and the times that we've been going through has has been a really good opportunity to take things forward. And I think it's also been a good period for reflection for the church, uh, as it's understanding more about people who are on their own. So it's a hopeful time. That's good. But there's maybe there are maybe different challenges as as we hopefully at some point come out of lockdowns um, and get back into church, but perhaps still have these restrictions. Questions around what does church look like now? Questions around what does church look like in the future? Will we go back to what we were before? Change and how does singleness and the challenge of inclusivity fit into that? Those discussions, do you think? Well, I think that's a really big question. I think that's a question across the board, really. Um, I think churches are have become very changed in terms of, you know, a lot of people, you know, really did not take to uh, their church being online. And some, some people absolutely loved it. And how we're going to marry the two is, is going to be very challenging for the rest of the church. I think hopefully it will give people more flexibility. I think some people will be able to get together more in groups because I think the problem for single people is that they they do find it hard to fit into groups and to get together Um, and sometimes you know I think online opportunities can be very positive uh, rather than having to run around the whole place and keep going off and uh, turning up Uh, but I think people are very different and some people uh, for instance, I mean, the classic, of course, is single single parents who've got young children. Um, and they are often uh, the most excluded um, of people because they they fit into, first of all, they fit into two categories. They're, they're both parents and they're single. But, you know, who's going to do the babysitting? Who's, who's going to look after the children while you you join something in church? And so I think we're all going to be able to include people who are having to spend more time at home or who can't get away from the office. I mean, one thing that single people do is often work later at the office and stuff like that. Um, 
travel more. So I think there will hopefully be a better opportunity to include people in different ways because we've got you know, the opportunities that we've had. But I think it's going to take a long time for the church to work through that. I don't know what you think. I think there's something very physical about the separation of church at the moment. And I think when we were talking before, you, you said this, um, but I physically have only been to church a couple of times in the small intervening period. And both of those times I went on my own, which I'm not equating to going on my own to church always, but I felt very isolated physically sitting on my own. I didn't really talk to anyone and so uh, knowing that I was going to talk to you I think that um, stuck in my head and how that, that physicality of how we're very separate when, when we have to be together um, and how that works in church and a, a real challenge of how how to overcome that within all the, the restrictions that we have right at this current time I think is a big challenge. Yeah I mean I I sort of have gone to church a lot when I could and I was kind of fine with it, really. I I was, um, you know, I, I enjoyed going to church. I, I much prefer it to to online, and I think that's why we're all different. You know, I, I you know, the minute the church opens, I'll I'll be there. You know, I and then I'll be bounding up to people, you know, at a distance afterwards, and and wanting to do that. But I'm very conscious of that. That's not what everybody wants to do. And I think churches are becoming. I think churches were all excited about opening up and then realise that quite a lot of people were, were quite happy staying at home. So I think <laughs> that's, a, that's a bigger issue than, uh, mm. than uh, even, you know, just about singleness, etc. It's It's a very interesting, of course, the church has been able to reach a lot more people. You, you talked about how a lot of church leaders have been coming to webinars and, and, and perhaps you've had lots of contact with church leaders before that. How have you found engagement with churches? I would imagine varied, but um, particularly thinking about leadership of churches, how, how have you found that as an organisation? Well, there are a lot of, um, I would say there are a lot of single church leaders. Um, a lot of them are women and they're brilliant. You know, they're really, really interested and keen on this. Um, and then, you know, but I'm rather conscious of the fact that there are, you know, we've probably still got a long way to go before we get the, you know, the married bloke <laughs> with children <laughs> to come along to something like a, a single friendly church seminar. I'm not saying we haven't had them, but I think that the reality is we're, we're starting with perhaps the the people for whom this is this is something they naturally feel very passionately about. And that's great because we really, really need those people. And they've been engaging really well. And I, I think they've been uh, very positive and, and, link, and, and just being able to link up with each other and feel, yes, they're not alone and they're going to make a success of this. And it, it's really becoming a focus. And at the same time, you, you'd like, you know, you'd like, the, you'd like these webinars to have more, um, you know, traditional married male clergy turning up. And I think we're still a long way off that, to be honest. Um, but you know, it's got to start somewhere, and I think I think it's been really exciting um, to see the very very um, proactive and positive attitudes that we've been finding. Uh, and I, I don't think we could have dreamed of it a year ago, because I think it was always my fear with single friendly church that it just wasn't going to work. That people were just going to say, "Well, it's too bad," you know. I mean, 
you know, there are more important things in life. You know, there are more excluded groups. It's just not, this is just not, it, this is just not important enough. And I think people are now beginning to say, yeah, it actually really is important. And so that's, you know, that's a huge encouragement. So if you reflect on the uh, years you've been operating, is it five, five years, single family church? Well, <laughs> It's really longer. difficult. We did the survey in about 2012 and we've kind of meandered for the last eight years. So we, as I explained, we did the survey, then we kind of published the research, then we set up a website. So it's been about four or five years of actual setting up a, an organisation. Uh, but it's been a sort of, but I would say it's really been in the last year or two that we've, we've really started campaigning. I think a lot of it was was going to a few talks, um, publishing information. So there's been it's been quite a, a, a slow process to get, partly because we just didn't really know where to start. Um, and so yes, we've been speaking at festivals and and uh, we gave some great talks and loads of people came. But of course, if you just talk to single people from congregations, I mean that's absolutely great. But are they going to be the people who are, will have the influence to change things? So, so we've kind of changed our focus towards trying to influence leaders more because they're ultimately the people who can make change. And, you know, like with all kinds of campaigning, you get a lot of people just saying, no, this is really not interesting for us. Or, yes, it's interesting, but it's just not our prior priority at the moment. And then you start finding people who say, yes, you know, actually... This really is a priority. And so I think we've been starting to find, you know, you start knocking at a door and eventually uh, people start to say, yeah, this is, this is what we need to be doing. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy area to be involved in, but I think we're, we're making progress. It's something I think I read on your website a little while ago, which I think perhaps links to this idea of auditing yourself, was you know, looking at statistics for the area that your church is located in, the demographics, and you can find them um, locally. I did this, um, but for my church, just oh, I'm a, bit of, a bit of a nerd for statistics. Well, what figure did you come up with? Well, I actually don't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately, <laughs> but I, I, I know that it was a higher statistic of singleness in the area than is in our church, although closer than perhaps I thought. But I, And I think it's a useful thing to reflect anyway, not only singleness, but does your church mirror the area you live? If not, then you can ask yourself some questions. But what other practical top tips would you kind of encourage people to do? What would you say if you're listening to this and you, you want a place to start as an individual, as a church? Well, I would say thinking very carefully about your welcome, encouraging the single people in, in the churches to really lead and do things. That the hospitality, I can't really emphasize hospitality enough. I remember talking to somebody who went to a church in West London and I said, you know, and she was single. I said, why, why do you go there? Is, is the vicar really good? No, not really. Um, are the people really nice? Well, it's okay. I mean, is that, what is special about this church? And she said, well, after church, we all go off to the pub. There's a whole load of single people and we go off to the pub afterwards. So um, and that was enough <laughs> for a lot of single people to go to that church. So, you know, creating that social opportunity, because after all, a lot of single people, Sunday likely want to go somewhere, you know, after church. 
go for lunch, go for coffee, whatever. And those are great opportunities. So social opportunities are really important. Um, not just to feel that you're tolerated by the kindly invited to people's houses, which is great, but also, you know, just, and I think also asking the single people in the churches um, what their experience is and, and how you can support them. I mean, not in a patronising way, but but just making sure you've got that dialogue and if and encouraging them to articulate what, what it is that they would like. So a lot of you know single people try and get initiatives going and they find that they're just not really encouraged enough by the church or it just doesn't doesn't take top billing. Most single people they can be quite feisty and they can come up with things. And so just really encouraging them to do that and giving them permission to promote their events. Often you just don't hear about them or they're just not mentioned. So I think it's really giving voice and encouragement and enthusiasm to the single people in the congregation. Great. Thank you very much. I think that is a nice way to end, giving, giving people who are excluded a voice. So thank you very much. And thank you, Jackie, for giving us a, an insight into single-friendly church and some of the giving up your time and joining us today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, thanks so much for inviting me, Emily. Um, and it's really great to connect with Resonate at all. Um, so my name's Ruth Edmonds and I am training to be a vicar. So at the moment I'm an ordinand um, and I'm training at the Queen's Foundation in Birmingham, but living in Bristol in a slightly complicated turn of events. Um, and I guess throughout my life, I would say that I have lived on a number of margins so for example my older sister is black i'm white my older sister is adopted so that gives you kind of some insight into kind of issues of racial justice and certainly means i've come closer to things like dealing with the fact my sister has actually been assaulted by the police than i think a lot of white people would normally experience um, and i identify as bisexual now my parents are they are charismatic Christians um, and they grew up in the charismatic tradition. So they were very involved in the early HTB movement back in London and they've always run an open house and felt very moved by their faith to do so. Um, my parents are also very bright, they're both academics. And I must say, I grew up with my parents' conception of Christianity as the main conception of Christianity that I had. Um, and they never suggested that being gay, being bisexual would ever be a problem. My mum identifies as bisexual. And I remember like a couple of weeks before I went to university, my mum sat me down and she said, so, you know, most evangelical Christians are not so sure about gay people. And I remember my head being completely blown by this because I never thought something that was just so intrinsic to who I was would ever be a problem. And I remember very naively going up to university and getting involved in the Christian Union and asking for recommendations on a church and saying, of course, I don't want to go to any of those weird churches where they have a problem with gay people. And then the person I was talking to just kind of slowed down and he said, I don't think that they have a, a problem with gay people. And I thought, oh no, you're one of them. <laughs> how could I possibly have walked into this? Now, obviously relationships are more than how people feel about sexuality and the Christian union continue to be my church family throughout all of that. Um, but I mean, my life is a strange one in that as a bisexual 
the person who I ultimately fell in love with could have been anyone. And I guess as I am pursuing ordination in the Church of England, I'm extraordinarily lucky that the person I fell in love with was a man. So ultimately, I identify as queer, but I am married to a man. And I guess I'd never heard anything about bisexuality specifically in church until I I started exploring being a priest. In which case, um, I looked up this document called Issues in Human Sexuality, um, which charmingly had one of the worst definitions of bisexuality I've ever come across written in it. And it basically said that um, bisexual people are inevitably unfaithful to their partners unless they go through counselling and discover if they're straight or they're gay. And that is the current official line on what it means to be bisexual. So I found that immensely shocking. Um, Especially because I never really encountered anyone who had a particular problem with bisexuality. Okay, you don't quite fit in with the gay movement and you don't quite fit in with straight people and everyone thinks you're doing it for attention, even though it's genuinely who you are. Um, but I never thought that the Church of England's understanding of bisexuality would be um, so based on such a gross stereotype, and it still is. So that was a bit of a shocker, and it's one of the things that might have prevented me from pursuing ordination. Um, Now, as I said, I am extremely fortunate, and I was very fortunate in that while I was at university, I came to contact with two really amazing gay priests. Um, One of them was called Alan Ramsey, and he was at the university church. And he was just so encouraging. He's one of those people who just kind of knows your whole life story before you've even said anything. And he was immensely good at listening and saying, no, you know, you have to be whoever God has called you to be. Um, And the other person was this guy called Dominic, um, and he was a bit younger, and he was perhaps like, you know, less sure about a lot of things, but he managed to hold his sexuality together with a real joy that, you know, in discovering who he was, he'd encountered God. And that was a huge part of understanding the grace of God, that he was loved no matter where he came from and whoever he was. Um, And those really powerful stories have really helped me. Um, And really encouraged me and I'm really privileged to be learning at Birmingham where a number of the members of staff are gay in association with a mixture of Anglicans and Methodists where the Methodist church doesn't allow gay married clergy Um, so it's a very different atmosphere and it's an atmosphere in which you can have a more nuanced debate about things like I think the problem is that because the Church of England can sometimes be such a broad church and there are issues like the definition of bisexuality being one that probably is actually derived from pornography, the idea that bi people want to have sex with everyone, that kind of thing is quite difficult to debate in the public arena. And it's I'm really privileged to be in a space where people don't hold such bigoted views about what it means to be bisexual, for example, and where, you know, I guess in my college, there are people who believe in gay marriage, people who don't believe in gay marriage, and they really show how it is possible to hold that together and live in loving relationship with each other without ever calling into question that the other people involved are loved by God or welcome in church. So I think that's really important. And I guess the major churches in my life, kind of church where I first met like a really great female vicar was St. James's Piccadilly where I worked for a couple of years as the pastoral assistant and that was a really amazing community because it's kind of on the edge of Soho so quite a lot of people there had been involved in 
nursing gay people through the AIDS epidemic. There were people who, this was the first church where they'd ever met any other gay Christians. And there were a huge range of asylum seekers from Uganda, from Ghana, who'd traveled across the world. And so that was a really privileging, amazing community to be part of. And I think, I think that intersectionality is complicated and it takes a lot of work. And I think that sometimes the big white liberal churches, you know, they're kind of famous for having a little bit more of a problem with racism than other churches do. But I think that intersectionality is about looking at the angles. It's not about throwing away the love that you have for one group or the ability you have to welcome one group. It's about looking at and thinking, what are the extra obstacles and how can we ensure that more people see this as a church where they're welcome, appreciated as loved children of God and able to flourish in the callings that God have for them. So I think you mentioned that you'd seen that I was doing some mentoring for the Church of England. That's an amazing scheme run by um, Rosemary Gotebed. And um, she is like this really, really incredible lady who's trying to make the church um, a better, more just place. So there are lots of people, you may have noticed that lots of vicars look and sound like me. They're kind of white, middle class, like quite privileged people. And there are lots of groups of people who are less likely to become a vicar. So young women is one of those groups quite a lot of young men but tend not to be so many young women and that's going to be partly because the church has like really abysmal policies on maternity leave we'll come to that another time but there are also a lack of people from lgbt backgrounds partly because a lot of lgbt people have experienced rejection in church so they wouldn't feel confident to stand up and say this is what i feel god is calling me to and partly because the selection process can be quite brutal in that you're expected to expose quite a lot of yourself and people will ask you personal questions about your family situation um, and if you're gay then because of the compromise that the church has currently reached they're entitled to ask you lots of questions about whether or not you're having sex with your partner for example which is understandably something that not everyone wants to discuss in a job interview context so it puts people off and the other group is working class people so while I put in my profile that I am bisexual and I'd be very open to mentoring someone who comes from an LGBT perspective um, I'm actually mentoring someone who's working class, whose diocese were foolish enough to say that because she got pregnant when she was young and she hadn't been to university, she was probably too stupid to be a vicar. And I really like to think that we could have got past that um, because this is not a stupid lady. Okay, she hasn't had an academic background, but that doesn't even know, mean that we know whether she's an academic person or not. Like she's never had the opportunity to go to university. So then I sit down and talk to her about strategies for dealing with that. I mean, it's been really, really powerful for people of colour. Like some of the people of colour mentors that I know are just really awesome because they've been through it all before. You know, I think there's lots of kind of slightly tedious discrimination and what can feel like racism. Like people can say, if you come from a majority world perspective, you don't know what it is to be Anglican, so you can't be ordained, for example, which is a really typical kind of line that lots of people hear. Um, and it's not true. Like Anglicans you know, the whole, that the, there is a, a group of Anglican churches across the world. It's not the case that Anglicans are all white Europeans. So it's really important to have people who are able to counteract those stereotypes. So I think maybe that, that feeds into something that we've talked about a little bit across the series that we've been thinking about inclusion. Perhaps it's thinking about representation and, and, and how represented you are personally but other people that you that you mentor that those intersections those margins how well represented do you think are people who don't perhaps fit that 
white middle class model? Well, I think it, it is pretty bad, is probably how I describe it. I, I actually sure I know anyone who's out as bisexual in the Church of England, for example. I only know someone, one person. No, I know now, now I know two people who are operating as clergy and are out as trans. Um, I guess, um, I, 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 think, I think it's also a problem that gets worse um, as, as you look up the church hierarchy. So, you know, the priests are pretty white, but when you look at the kind of people who work for the diocese, bishops, like they're even whiter. I think there are only two black bishops in the Church of England, for example. Um, and there are a few working class bishops and there probably are some gay bishops, but I don't think there are any out gay bishops at all. Or at least I don't know any of any, so I could just be totally wrong there. But I've certainly never heard of one, and I have been following some of the movements closely. You're talking quite a lot about about leadership and representation, um, and then if we kind of go a step out from that, if we're talking about representation, just in, in the day to day, sort of on yeah, what does it look like in church? Does it are we representative? in churches um in terms of anything in terms of our, our metaphors our language um our visuals um the stories that we tell i think um one of the problems that we have is that i think that the stories that we tell are often shaped by the leadership that we have um and i think that sometimes there are kind of multiple readings of bible stories that don't always get heard I have occasionally attended majority gay churches. So um, there are there are there are churches where there are lots of gay people, where there are lots of LGBT people, um, I guess transsexual people I've seen less of in church, and I think that is an increasing problem. I think we have a little bit of a problem in that sometimes kind of white LGBT friendly churches are more likely to stereotype black people as likely to be homophobic. So I think a classic example would be, I don't know if you watched that series Broken on TV. It had this kind of interaction between kind of elderly queer guy living on his own and an uncle coming over from the Caribbean whose nephew had just been shot by the police. I mean, it's not a good interaction all round, um, but you have... The, the homophobia versus racism. And I think that is a stereotype that is sometimes lived out with. Is I actually attend a black majority church in the morning in St. Agnes. And um, I don't think that that's the reality that is there. So I think while there is this suspicion sometimes in white majority liberal churches about people of color, I think it's ungrounded. And I think it does come from a place of prejudice. So I think, you know, it's those intersections being complicated and the stories we tell about other people. I think sometimes it's unhelpful if the main people in color you come into contact with are asylum seekers asking for help because they obviously come from a very traumatized perspective with regard to their country of origin. And they're much more likely to adopt a subservient perspective in a church um, because they're grateful and because they're desperate and because they're completely reliant on the community. Um, and that can sometimes also help to foster negative stereotypes. And it has, certainly has done in some of the churches that I've been in in the past. So, for example, at St. James Piccadilly, the person who took my job after me was a, a woman of colour. 
another bisexual woman of color um and and she's encountered barriers which which i never encountered um so uh, yes i i think we do tell bad stories about each other i think it does help when you can see people symbols which demonstrate that someone's welcome so i think you know i think it, it's really telling that um, eastern family center which is in bristol um, once they had a visual representation of a family of color seeking asylum as the image of christmas in their painted into their church that shaped them into a community that was better able to welcome asylum seekers and recognize the image of god in them I think that Cottam, St. James's are all churches which fly the LGBT flag. St. James's has an LGBT, has an LGBT flag altar cloth for gay pride service. And that kind of visual of often a gay priest presiding at a rainbow altar, you know, that's a very vivid image to counteract a negative image. But I think it's, I think we've, we're getting to a place where there are images which say, you're welcome here. I'm not sure that we, I think the next stage is perhaps to see that LGBT people are not just people, but they also have a story of oppression and things to offer. So I'm very excited by books like Queer Virtue, which suggests that the church has something to learn from LGBT communities, as well as just being assimilated into LGBT communities. And I think sometimes the flag is just a symbol we're not going to be horrible to you <laughs> so i think it is really powerful and it does let you know that this is a place where you're welcome but it's kind of is kind of is kind of a counteracting image because i know a lot of people who wouldn't come to church because they've been made to feel unwelcome and certainly i remember the former dean of bristol cathedral david hoyle telling the story of i don't know if you remember after the orlando shootings which were a big shooting in a gay mad club um, they had this kind of space for prayer afterwards in the cathedral. And he said, basically everyone on their way in said, is it okay for me to come into this space? I don't know if you'd like to have people like me in your space, in your cathedral. Um, and I think when that's how the LGBT community feel, it is really important to have the rainbow altar cloth and to have the rainbow flag. But I think we also need to get better at recognizing the fact that, you know, there will be some queer stories in the Bible and they're not all going to be terrible. So I think one of the stories that I find particularly encouraging is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, who is undoubtedly, I guess, a model of someone who's queer in the queer as in not heterosexual in the Christian tradition, um, and who not only accepts baptism, but requests it, who seeks out Christ and forms the church in Ethiopia. I think that's a very powerful story. I don't think we hear enough about that. And, and I think, you know, sometimes that there are problems with, I guess, how we conceive of heterosexual identities. What does a loving, well-boundaried relationship look like, which are slightly better defined in the LGBT tradition. I, I think that, um, I think that sometimes in heterosexual relationships, there are expectations on one gendered partner that I don't necessarily think are like kind of godly. I think, you know, like the expectation, you know, I think I, one of the things I was reflecting on is that, um, you know, as a, as a wife, 
uh, I'm kind of aware the washing up is 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 not done. Now in my house, the way we divide divide chores means that I clean up everything that's not the kitchen. So the washing up is deeply not my job. And yet, if we have guests round and the washing up's not done, I kind of feel like it's going to be my problem. And I think in a queer tradition, you don't have that expectation. So I think kind of about gender stereotypes, about roles in parenting, about the fact that sometimes it takes more than two people to parent a child. Those, those are all things that we can learn from the gay community, I think. And I think you've alluded to this, you've inferred this, but there's something about being part of this Church of England, which is this broad church. But these individual stories that you've talked about, your own other people's, they kind of infer a real pain and, and hurt. And I guess what what is the cost of being part of the the Church of England, because I, I think sometimes it's something that you can be part of perhaps a more inclusive bubble or a bubble that reflects your own values and forget perhaps you're even part of the Church of England and then something will change that um, and you might think, what? why am I part of the Church of England? Do I want to be? Um, yeah, what is, the, what is the cost for you, particularly as somebody who is is part of this sort of leadership and and will be in the future i think one of the problems with being in the church of england is that you can't just say i'm right and the question settles though i i do also think that's kind of a good thing so back in the day when we were kind of working out what the church of england was there was this theologian called hooker who basically i think created anglicanism by refusing to be either really catholic or really protestant and i think elizabeth basically did the same thing by like making out that she was going to marry a catholic or a protestant extreme protestant and never quite doing it and managing to hold that ambiguity for 17 years but hooker used to stand up and preach one thing every day and then his lay reader would stand up the next day and preach the exact opposite um, and it's holding that tension accepting that there are voices there are some voices who i'm a female training to be a priest and they would say no you're not god doesn't call women um, and they'd have deeply held beliefs for that being the case um, but what they're believing is that my calling my story about myself is not true which is quite a difficult thing to hold and i think the same is true of the lgbt issue i think it is quite painful especially when the church doesn't really understand bisexuality or transsexuality at all. Like, it doesn't really understand that. It's barely getting to grips with gay and lesbian is probably how I describe it. It's, and it's really on the thin end of the wedge. Imagine when we get into like gender, non-binary people. I don't think that the church has a theology for those people. I, I think you can have conversations with people and sometimes they're having conversations where their theology is a problem with you. And there are times when that's coming from a really um, deeply held personal journey per se. So I, I guess there's a, there's a vicar in, I think he's a vicar um, in Bristol called Ed Shaw, who is the head of an organization called Living Out. Now he is a gay man, but he has chosen, he believes that it is against God's will to, to enter into relationships. So he's been celibate and gay and single for like all of his life. And that's obviously had a lot of pain for him. And it's kind of one thing arguing with him. And then it's quite another thing arguing with someone who's just coming from a place of homophobia because 
there are some people who just find the idea of gay people a bit gross. And you can kind of tell when it's just the idea of gay people are gross because they don't ever talk about lesbians. They just want to talk about gay sex and how it's immoral. And so you can kind of, I think, dealing with that and having to find a way of dealing with that and accepting that there are some people who, who come from that perspective, I find that very challenging. So to kind of flip that round then, and again, I think you've mentioned examples of inclusivity previously. What, what would your ideal church look like? What would that be as an inclusive space? I, I guess, um, you know, the ideal church for me is a place where, where everyone has something to offer. Um, and I think that, that, you know, in some senses that has to be a queer inclusive space. In some cases that has to be a single inclusive space. Like I had a, a quite a tearful discussion with someone the other day who told me that their vicar had never spoken to them until she brought a boyfriend to the service, for example. Um, and I'd like to belong to a church where people aren't rejected out of hand on relationship status. Um, because we're all beloved children of God. Um, I think that probably, for me, the best metaphor is eating together. Like, you know, I think if you can eat with someone and engage with them as a human being, you know, not necessarily talking about theology like all the time, and certainly not talking about sexuality all the time, because actually that's dead boring, then I think that that is a lot of what inclusion and what what the kingdom of God looks like. So one of the things I find quite challenging is coming from a multiracial family, my older sister's black, I'm white. We've never been in a church where we've been seen as a legitimate family. Um, So, you know, we've been to churches in Manchester, we've been to churches in London. And I guess coming to Queen's in Bristol, Birmingham, which is the first college where I told my tutor about this. Um, And he's a, he's a really great um, priest, uh, fantastic Bahamaian guy who has kind of journeyed the whole journey and has grown up in the church in the Bahamas and come to the UK and he said well those people are silly and you shouldn't listen to them and so Queen's is the centre for black theology the centre for queer theology I guess as a college it's kind of like Hufflepuff in that I think it was formed almost by accident because it was this kind of rogue campus near Birmingham uh, where basically all the people who got rejected by anywhere got left because they that's where they were that that's the only place they were safe so for a while it it has been the center for black theology for a long time it's one of it's the only um it's the only anglican college in the uk with an out lesbian on the staff it's been a big center for feminist theology it's ecumenical and it's got people from all over the world so big links with Sri Lanka where Christians are notably repressed and Rwanda um and some of the members of the staff actually grew up in survived just about the Rwandan genocide and lost multiple siblings and I think kind of like Hufflepuff in Harry Potter you know where the Helga Hufflepuff gathers everyone in and says um you know I took all the rest and made them loved and welcome like I think I think that's what the kingdom of God looks like it's the place where everyone that anyone wants to reject ends up and as a result it ends up being a much more holy place I haven't ever seen something, a place that does that perfectly. I think I've seen places that have done aspects of it perfectly. And I think there are lots of rules for inclusion. I think the most important rule is um, if you've got someone standing up in church telling a story, make sure you've got a range of stories. So I think St. Agnes, where I go in the morning, you know, there are these amazing ladies who came over with the Windrush generation or just after it 
and have kind of survived church in Bristol. Most of them have stories about how they've been rejected from other churches and gradually formed this church as a safe place. And they've kind of held the space and it's almost this kind of accidental miracle. And you go, you go to that church and it is shining with the love of God. And, 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 and I kind of, you know, I think inclusion is almost something that happens when you let people in and you don't say, oh, you're going to be our token LGBT person. But you sort of say, what do you want to bring to the table? What, what would you do if you could do anything? And allow people to shape the space because I guess we're all made in the image of God. And in church, we're all there to worship God, um, to worship a God who we don't know whether he was hetero or homosexual. He didn't get married. He didn't have children. Someone who was from a minority, an oppressed minority in a very totalitarian state who preached against capitalism in a deeply capitalist world. And I think, you know, if we're going to hear that story best, we're going to hear it best told from a place of oppression because I think to understand oppression and Jesus is speaking to people who are oppressed from a perspective of oppression then you have to hear it spoken by someone who has been oppressed and I think so so for example you know I think the the story of the good Samaritan we all listen to it and think oh we must be like the good Samaritan but it's not a story where he says you should be like the good Samaritan he asks who the man on the floor's neighbor was And the man on the floor has been beaten up and left to die. And this posh, like, guy picks him up and takes him to a hotel and looks after him. And one of the hard things for the man on the floor is that he has to accept, like, being helped by someone who is vastly more privileged than him and find a way of processing that. Um, And we don't tell that story, the story about how as an oppressed person, you accept help from more privileged, richer people. I don't think that's a story we ever hear in church, even though that's, you know, who, who is the neighbor in the story? The neighbor is the good Samaritan. Who is the difficult person to love? It's the good Samaritan. So I think that in our society this year, perhaps not in particular, but again, there's a focus on how, how change happens does it happen politically personally peacefully violently legally illegally how do you think that translates into into the church particularly perhaps in view of these issues on sexuality in particular that the church is beginning to perhaps try and resolve perhaps how do we go forwards I guess I think that's a huge question and I definitely don't have all the answers but I think one of the most important things is if you want to advocate for a group whether that's LGBT people or black people or working class people it's really important that however great and wonderful your aspirations are if you're not a member of that group hand over the microphone and let them speak so I think that's sometimes really hard. I, I know a lot of vicars who are desperately committed to LGBT issues and they want to tell everyone about it, but they don't often want to invite, invite a powerful LGBT person to speak. And I think it's much easier to get a speaker that these days than it has been in the past. Um, and I guess I think the living in love and faith thing 
the kind of conversation the Church of England is having about sexuality at the moment, which is meant to be this really kind of open conversation where we all learn to love each other um, and listen to each other. There are some good things about that conversation. And one of the good things about the conversation is if you think something or if you come from a perspective, there are people who've been really brave in sharing their stories and putting them out there to be read. Um, and I, I think sometimes when you come into contact with people and suddenly hear their story, you're suddenly much more able to understand their journey and to see them as beloved children of God and recognize that, you know, I think church has got a lot of an older pop congregation on average. So <laughs> there are lots of older people and older people often don't come into contact with gay people. I think my granddad once told me that no one had ever come out to him. And he didn't understand because he went to boarding school, he was in the army. Like, if he'd not met any gay people, were there any gay people? And I just think generationally, there's a huge challenge. Like, and I think sometimes older gay people find it challenging too. You know, personally, I've grown up, I never had to come out to my parents. They always thought it would be okay if I brought home a girlfriend, if I brought home for a boyfriend. I knew that. So I guess I come from this really unique generation of slightly more empowered people where it's not always a struggle. There are joys in being gay. Um, and that's a slightly different story. And I don't necessarily think it's one that the church is ready for because they're still getting over the kind of traumatized coming out story. The problem is that church politics is really, really boring until it's not. So I guess, I guess, you know, if this is an issue, if LGBT representation is an issue that's really important to you, um, it's really important to go to that really long deanery synod meeting and ideally to get elected to diocesan or synod and then eventually get to general synod. We don't have enough of the laity uh, of people who are not ordained, people who aren't vicars, saying those things in church politics. So it's normally the people who aren't ordained, who aren't vicars, who are more conservative. They're the most conservative synod in the Church of England. And I think it's important to stand up and be counted there. I also think it's an issue where you should write to your local MP. So at the moment, the Church of England is not under the auspices of the Equality Act. So for example, that means that I'm not entitled to any maternity pay if I were to get pregnant. It means that the church is entitled to discriminate on sexuality, on gender, on age, and does, and on race. I mean, we've had some really painful examples recently of people being um, discriminated against on the grounds of race. Um, certainly I've got a friend up in Durham who was rejected for a curacy on the grounds that his face wouldn't quite fit and he probably wouldn't get on with the local community, even though he's been working in white working class areas all his life. Um, so it wasn't true, but it was a way of writing him off. And I don't know anyone who is a person of colour who is training in the Church of England who has not had to go through much longer, more gruelling selection process. If you are sitting in any church community and you look around and you reflect that it's not very inclusive, perhaps not in terms of literally whether you're welcoming on the door, but actually you're not a diverse body in some ways, what can churches do to be more inclusive I think guest speakers on the issue. I think being willing to pray about the issue, I think in the areas of race, like lamentation about whiteness is really important, especially in Bristol where 
there's been a huge history of rejection of black people and that's within living memory. I think, um, I think art is really important. I think one of the problems we have is that we have a lot of white Jesuses um, and Jesus wasn't white. I think we have sometimes very expensive artwork, which is delivered, which is left from ex slavers. Um, we have churches which are paid for with the money from slavery. Um, and I think one of the really powerful things that we can do is ensure that we're paying black people, LGBT people to add to or write over the artwork that we have in our churches. So, you know, I think about there's a window in Bristol Cathedral, which comes up all the time in my mission evangelism lectures. So my lecturer is this guy called Robert Beckford. Um, and he considers like Bristol to be like the most racist diocese in the UK. So he always uses this example. He talks about the window in, in, in Bristol Cathedral as being an insult to the people of colour in the city because it's, it's a tribute to a slaver. And, he, and his view is that what we should do is we shouldn't try and write out the past. We shouldn't get rid of the artwork altogether, but we should just pay a really great black artist to essentially graffiti over it and leave a decent message over next to it saying, this is why we've done what we've done and this is how we're lamenting. Um, and I think the same is true. I think there are churches which have historically rejected gay people. Um, and I think again, the Anglican churches in Bristol within living memory, many of them are guilty of this. And I think in that case, you know, some rainbow imagery doesn't hurt. Some images of the Ethiopian eunuch don't hurt. There are gay saints, like you can celebrate them. Um, there are some extraordinarily gay people who, you know, for example, I can think of one guy, I can't remember his name, but who, you know, set up the first hospice to deal with HIV um, in, um, in Core Boys in Soho and cared for those people whose families had rejected them, whose communities had rejected them, who were dying on their own. Um, and I think, I think, you know, remembering those people, telling those stories, invite a guest speaker. Um, and um, I think sometimes admitting that you're wrong, I think that's something that the church finds really, really hard. Um, so I think, um, I think, you know, I think, you know, obviously in Bristol, a lot of the churches are built on the black of slavery. Um, and it's not okay just to be ahead of the, of the curve and say, you know, we're fighting racism now. You've also got to say, I'm sorry we got this wrong. I'm sorry we're doing this so late, you know, and redirect resources so they're not all aimed at, uh, at the parishes where the ex-slavers and their children live. You know, I think wealth, wealth discriminates. Um, I think it discriminates against people of colour. Um, I think often... LGBT people who can frequently, or there is a generation of LGBT people, I'm quite lucky to be younger than this generation who are often um, disowned by their parents. So they didn't have the kind of inherited house that some middle class children have. Um, so, you know, they're less likely to be wealthy um, because wealth doesn't travel in the same way. And I think that means that, you know, one of the most important things that we can do is ensure that we're supporting black owned businesses, ensure that we're supporting queer owned businesses, queer artists, black artists, um, and ensure that we're redistributing money where we can. And then just to come back to you for a moment, thinking about, you've, you've kind of laid out for us some of your own intersections, I think. Do you feel one, 
seen for your whole self within the church and to able to be your whole self within the church? I'm getting there is probably how I describe it. Like I have been painfully embarrassed about who I am and repressed parts of who I am in conversation with the church in the past, in quite recent memory, actually. I think sometimes I've struggled to imagine what it would be to be a woman in leadership. I certainly sometimes have struggled to express the queerer parts of my identity. It's slightly easier to be your complete self in a community like Queens, where all the parts of yourself are kind of represented. Um, And I guess my next job is going to be in a really working class area, a white working class area, which is a culture that I don't know so well. Um, uh, But I think it's a really important culture for the church to be including. So I'm really excited about training in that context. But I... (laughs) I, I, you know, I need to work out how to be my complete self in that context as well without shoving all that I am and where I come from down someone's throat. So prayers for that would definitely be appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ruth, for uh, generously giving up your time and, and sharing um, both elements of your own story and your reflections on on the church and uh, on being part of these different communities it's it's really appreciated and i think both really challenging and and helpful um in exploring these issues so thank you very much this podcast was produced and presented by me emily mcgrath the music was created by scott holmes accessed through the free music archive thank you to our interviewees jackie elton and ruth edmonds You can find us on Twitter at Resonate Bristol and Facebook at Resonate. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for Series 3 in January 2021.